Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Today I have Alison Evans, an award-winning author, here to talk about their second novel. It's a young adult zombie apocalypse thriller called Highway Bodies. Welcome, Alison. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) You are welcome. Uh, Before we dive into Highway Bodies, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your pathway to publication, your awards, and how you got to this uh, momentous occasion of your second novel, which is pretty scary after (laughs) the success of the first. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, well, I submitted Ida to a few publishing houses, got a lot of rejections, um, reworked it a bit, and then my publisher, Echo Publishing, I followed Angela Meyer on Twitter, so I thought, oh, cool, I've got an in. Um, And then I saw Echo were taking unsolicited um, manuscripts because I don't have an agent. Um, So I sent them the first three chapters, and then the next day they emailed me and they were like, please send us more. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so now Echo Publishing, are they based in the UK or Australia? Um, they're owned by Bonnier in the UK, yeah. but Echo, um, kind of both. Like they're, yeah. they, yeah, so Angela Meyer and like three other staff members are in Australia. And then um, the rest is done in conjunction with Alan and Unwin. I think they do our oh, distribution now. Right. And... Um, and yeah, the rest is done in the UK. Oh, that's good. So, um, uh, Ida, your first novel, and this novel, Highway Bodies, are they distributed throughout the Commonwealth? Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Um, I know um, I'm in New Zealand and Australia, but right. uh, nowhere else yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, they might be looking to sell the rights. Yes. Well, that would be very cool. I would like that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a universal genre, uh, zombies. Now, before we dive into the specifics of your book, uh, yesterday I was researching a little bit about the zombie genre tradition, mm-hmm. and it is complicated. Yes. <laughs> it is. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a snapshot of the history of zombie fiction through the 20th century and how it's evolved in the 21st century? Because it really didn't exist in the 19th century, did it? I don't know. Like, I'm not a zombie buff. <laughs> um, so I guess zombies were a, a bit of a strange move for me. Um, well, that surprised me. I thought you must be because it's uh, you know, <laughs> you've got the trope down really well. Thank you. I I think I know I know of zombies, but I've only like seen a few seasons of The Walking Dead, um, Shaun of the Dead, which oh. is a comedy, a, a zom rom com, yeah. I believe. Um, and <laughs> uh, apart from that, I haven't really read or seen a lot of zombie things. Okay. So. Yeah. I mostly know the tropes, and I thought, well, how can I, how can I kind of play with them? Right. Yeah. Because I was looking at what zombies symbolise, and they, mm-hmm. it changes. It depends who you read at different times. Earlier in the 20th century, it could be a, a metaphor for mass production and consumerism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it seems to evolve, and after World War II, there was another evolution of uh, coming from Holocaust survivors. And then mm-hmm. The Walking Dead, uh, people have been suggesting it's fear of the other do you find any sort of uh, any fit with your writing in any of those broad scenarios for what they symbolize oh i i thought about it a lot but i'm not really sure i think uh for me they kind of are 
I guess fear of the the unknown and the unexpected. Yeah. So, like, my zombies are fast and slow. Like, you don't really know which ones they are. And, I, <laughs> and I, like, that's so scary, I think, because you don't know what to expect. Yeah, um, yeah so I'm not – I also probably capitalism, really. Yeah. Yeah. Fair and consumerism that goes along with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, now, one of your key points of difference as a writer is that you're, you've got three – first-person points of view, and they are all non-binary characters. Is that your point of difference in the, in the genre? Oh, well, one is, one is non-binary. Uh, one's a trans girl and yeah. then one's a cis girl. Um, yeah, I think just having um, queer characters as main characters yeah. is my point of difference. And, um, yeah. Sorry, cis girl? Oh, yes. Uh, so cis uh, basically means not trans. Um, so a cis girl would be a, a baby si- assigned female at birth who then, when they grow up, identifies as female. It's a complex world, David. I to, tell you what, I'm, I'm just getting too old now for <laughs> <laughs> all of this. Oh, well, the characters, uh, they are three first-person points of view and there's combinations, which uh, so many thrillers are written in multiple th- third-person point of view, mm-hmm. but I haven't actually read one before in multiple first-person. Was that difficult to do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I think next time I would do two because three is, is so hard. Um, yeah, so it was very difficult. And then you kind of forget, um, like in my first draft, everyone sounded quite the same. Um, and then you have to make them distinctive and you have to remember, you know, which plot line is with which character. And, um, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was very tricky. It took me a little while to catch on as a reader. I thought, um, is this still the same person? And then I realised, oh, okay, she's switching points of view in there, um, which is good when I caught on. But the, I think you chose well to open with that particular character's voice that is so strong mm. and deliberately uh, misspelled at times and using phonetic uh, language, which gives a, a, a real presence. And, uh, and then you realise, oh, okay, well, this couldn't be the same person. And yes. then it, uh, it, it all works out well. Now, tell me, in this has probably got uh, 20 different answers to this question, but how do you actually kill a zombie? <laughs> uh, I reckon spinal cord is the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you got to sever it or just pierce it? Or? Uh, oh, I don't, I don't know. I never thought about the difference. Um, I guess sever probably or pierce it like yeah. more than 50%, I would imagine. Because one of your characters wields a cricket bat pretty well. Yes. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't they? <laughs> Is that right? If I got the pronoun right, uh, doesn't they? Or she? She. She's she, a she, yeah. 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 Wheels a cricket back pretty well. But I think that's actually smashing the skull so the, the brain is yes. damaged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, now, is it Dawn who is so good with a knife through the eye socket? Yes, yeah. yeah. She's, she's got it down. Good. She's she's very tough. <laughs> is, she, is she based on anyone you know? Because no, this is set around Melbourne. That's true. Um, yeah. yeah, if I knew if I knew Dawn, I would be very scared of her. Yeah. <laughs> And location, I mean, we so often uh, read uh, American or see American zombies or European zombies. Uh, Why did you pick Melbourne or the surrounds? It's Melbourne and surrounds, isn't it? A lot of it's around King Lake and... Yeah, Um, I just thought, uh, well, I grew up here, so I know it very well. Um, I used to live in the Dandenongs. Um, There's just a lot of space in Australia, um, which also, I feel like the bush itself... um, 
is very conducive to an apocalypse situation. <laughs> yeah, well, um, survival tales, it's great. Yeah, Because I'm, yeah. I'm intrigued uh, uh, more what actually happened in Melbourne and where, where it spread. So is there a sequel to this particular book? No, a couple of people have said that. They're yeah. like, what happens in the city? I'm like, I, I don't know and I don't really... <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know if I care that much. Because I read the sample yeah. of your next book uh, at the yes. very end, mm -hmm. uh, Euphoria Kids. Yes. Yeah, and it's very different again. Yes. So, yeah. And uh, if uh, listeners are wondering if Highway Bodies is similar to Ida, Ida is quite different again, isn't it? It's about a doppelganger and the choices we make. Yeah. So I think Ida is quite a small story because there are only, I think, six characters in the book. Um and, yeah, so Ida, she basically can go back and make a different choice. She thinks it's time travel. It's parallel universes. There are doppelgangers. Um, yeah, so in my first two books, I wrote about the things that scare me the most. Yeah. Um, which was, a, you know, it worked out, but it was scary writing them. <laughs> well, I've got to ask you if uh, parallel universes, multiverses, and thinking about things on the edge of Melbourne, was the Nowhere Boys TV series an influence on you writing at all? Because they had parallel universes and they were... Oh, no, I don't know what, what that is. It was is. an Emmy Award winning uh, show that was on um, ABC Me, I think it was. That, mm -hmm. um, it, it's finished now, but it ran for four seasons. But, right. Uh, Oh, okay. So yeah, it I'll check it out. <laughs> but there is certainly a sliding doors type uh, moment of what have I just chosen to do this and mm. um, what would have happened. But that was triggered by a personal event, wasn't it? Something uh, nearly happened to you which you managed to avoid. What was that? Yeah, so I was working um, at a tourist railway like Ida um, <laughs> and I got in the car and I um, was about to drive off, then remembered I, I had to get changed. So I got out of the car, got changed, got back in, got on the road, and then there had been a car accident. And Was it a severe accident? Uh, it was just a little one. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone was really hurt, but I just thought, you know, what if I was in the accident? Mm, um, yeah. yeah, and then that kind of spiraled from there. Yeah. And the choices in all those different universes going on. The string theory, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really understand, but yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, it's great for uh, writing speculative fiction. Mm. I've got to ask you, are you going to the Speculative Fiction Writing Festival this weekend at Gasworks Park? No, I have to work. <laughs> oh, okay. So I thought I'd get yeah. in the plug there, which is happening this no. weekend at Gasworks Park. Any listener, listeners are keen on going, and um, this is its second year. So um, mm. uh, check it out online at the Spec Fic uh, Festival and uh, what they're doing down there. And one last question I'd like to ask is, what makes for a great story in your view? I really like characters that you really care about, like from the first page. Um, anything else, I don't really mind. Um, I just have to care about the protagonist, even if I hate them. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I don't see the point. So you can hate them, but you still empathise with them and think well, yeah. what would it be like? Or I issues? still, or I still care about what happens. Yeah. Like, do I want them to get their comeuppance, or yeah. you know, get the thing that they want? Yeah. Mm. yeah, fair enough. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning, Alison. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Ewan. Well, I've got a survival story of sorts, and. Slightly apocalyptic in certain <laughs> sense. Uh, scary, although there aren't any zombies, although one of the characters is a sociopath. So that's the next best thing. Crime is a caper, 
Ewan, a way of life, a means of existence. Andy Muir's larrikin anti-hero, Lockie Munro, exists on the edges of society and incarceration is a single step away. So it's Andy Muir's book, Hiding to Nothing, with Lockie Munro. So, Andy, welcome to 3CR. Oh, welcome. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> I was going to say thank you for the fantastic uh, intro there. It was quite... Not to worry. <laughs> well, hopefully it'll get even better when we look into this novel. I mean, Lockie Munro doesn't seem to stand a chance. He lives on the fringes of society as a house painter, and I'm sort of fascinated by this world you've got him in where, as a house painter, he has to find other means of supplementing his income, and he seems to be living in a world like that. Well, that's right, and, and I um, I think there's a lot of people like Lockie out there that, that are sort of outsiders. They're just making ends meet. They're maybe living paycheck to paycheck. Um, they're not really saving anything, and that's kind of where Lockie comes from. And you've got a resort crime almost well yeah and not sort of maybe not resorting not, to crime but, but certainly you know bending the, the rules, rules to, and, to make ends meet and I, I kind of um with the first book something for something for nothing that was kind of a question that people asked was you know how do you kind of write about a crook and like well really i don't see him as a, a crook i see him as an opportunist mm. and he's just taking the opportunity to make a bit of extra cash it just so happens that it's dodgy it's, it's a dodge. <laughs> and there are people that control these sort of alternate systems of cash i mean we find him in the opening in a milk bar he's come to give a quote but the milk bar makes um extra money it doesn't just sell milk what else is it in well, that's right yeah it was sort of uh the the milk bar owner is um is buying illegal pharmaceuticals from overseas to help his wife's beauty salon uh, so he's getting, you know, Chinese Botox and those sorts of things. But it, it's, it's sort of a minor crime. What we hear about are the sort of busts where multi-million dollars worth of drugs is is captured, and that takes the imagination of, of the community. But these are a small-scale sort of crime. Well, yeah, that's right. And that's that's a um, the reality of organised crime, is that it's not necessarily the big things. It's actually a conglomerate of little things being controlled by one group. And your familiarity with this sort of mysterious world comes from where? Well, look, I, I kind of fell in love with crime through... I was the lead researcher for the Underbelly series... So a lot of the material that I'm working with is things that I've learnt through the research there or, you know, talking to, to crooks and cops along the way. Um, so most of the stuff that is in the book is real. They're just sort of things that we couldn't use or, you know, for whatever reason, lawyers would say, no, you can't go there. And that becomes slightly frightening when you look at, you know, we're, you and I are from the respectable side of town, but there's this whole other world taking place out there. Well, there is. You know, I think that, you know, that's, that's the reality of life. There is this underworld. doesn't matter where you are. There, there are things going on that we are not aware of, and sometimes it's best not to be aware of. <laughs> So next time you go to your local milk bar, look out. That's for Botox. That's right. <laughs> now, Lockie's personal situation is what then drives this story. He's caught up as a victim of an armed robbery, and then things spiral out of control. But the perpetrator of this robbery is interesting. How much can you start giving away already about... Well, I think, you know, the, the kind of cat's out of the bag pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, 
you know in the in the book and also in you know press releases and other reviews that are out there so uh, it, it's actually Lockie's father he's a estranged father he hasn't seen for 20 years who's um got out of prison and he's basically working his way up the coast as a crooked grey nomad and it's just by chance that they're in the same place at the same time. And Lockie's father is somewhat of a sociopath. Where to start describing a monster? The facts? Terry McElwain is an armed robber, a murderer, a career criminal with more time in prison than out. His curriculum vitae detailed crimes from car theft through to extortion, armed robbery and murder. Then there were the crimes that were suspected but never proven, like the rumoured executions he'd done as a hitman and the bank robberies that bore a striking resemblance to other crimes he had been convicted of. How do you have a relationship as a son with a father like that? Well, that was that was one of the uh, the challenge, challenges I set myself. I mean, the, the big one was I wanted to write a crime novel where the the protagonist was innocent but suspected of being guilty and everything around him was guilty. Um, and so he was kind of guilty by um, by default. And then the other one was because it came from the idea of like how do you like what what would happen if your dad was Chopper Reed and he wanted to have a relationship and how do you kind of separate the man from the act, um, which is something that's going through the arts at the moment with with various things. Mm. Um, and as you said, the um, the judgments yesterday were really you know incredibly prescient. That was exactly what I was sort of well, trying to explore. Rusevsky, how do you pronounce his name? Rusevsky, who's murdered his wife. But mm. For two years, his kids have been supporting him, etc. Now he turns out to be a murderer. So you have a relationship with that person, but how then do you take that relationship forward? It's it's real. It, it is real, and it's quite a it's a challenge. Um, and I think that the, that in the book that challenge is is explored. They they don't really get to know each other and, and have that close. But he's got no control. He's got no way of advancing. His father takes advantage. Yeah. I mean, breaks yeah. into his little uh, granny flat and uses the facilities without even asking <laughs> sort of thing. And and therefore, and, and anything that uh, his father does, that Terry does, could implicate him. And so he's he could end up so easily in jail. That's right. That's right. But, but you know, at the same time, that you know familial bond, yeah. you, you can't break that. And then you also have the other layering. You have Billy Wong, and then you have um, the Irish Monahans. Would you care to explain who the <laughs> Irish Monahans are and who Billy Wong is and what's going on there? Well, Billy Wong's in the in the first book, and he's kind of the uh, a key figure in the um, the shadier side of Newcastle. Um, he runs. Uh, if there's some illegal money to be had, Billy will have a finger in that in that operation. Um, so when sort of Lockie gets into trouble, Billy's kind of the one that can well, Billy help can, him. Billy can offer him some work. Would you mind taking this package from here to here sort of yeah. thing? No questions asked. That's right. The simple things. And this is, again, where, where it comes back to, is Lockie a criminal or is it just circumstance? You know, the idea of being asked to take a package seems very innocent until you work out what's actually in that package. Um, so that's kind of, you know, where they, they, those two sit. And then the Monaghan sort of came about from some research where... I was I was told that there was an Irish drug cartel that's been pushing into Australia from New Zealand, uh, you know, again, sort of chasing the uh, incredible amount of money that the Australian amphetamine, uh, you know, usage is generating. Um, but again, what we have is um, Lockie Court in the middle of this. Yeah, you know, right. uh, Billy Wong and, and sort of... Well, he, he actually goes up to Billy and explains things so he won't get... Uh, 
taken down, shall we say, by Billy, who feels offended. He's got the Monaghans tailing him and in a in a black Audi sort of thing. And they know everything that's going on. And so with his father, with Billy Wong, with the Monaghans, he's powerless. Lockie is powerless. That's right. So how do you survive in that situation? That was kind of the, you know, the, the thing I was trying to work with. And, um, and the other thing about the book is that all of the trouble is outside coming into Newcastle. It's an outside threat, which is what Newcastle is actually kind of experiencing at the moment, in that not with a crime sense, but uh, there's so much development in that city and it's being driven from outside. Well, I, I sort of don't want to but do want to take it to the next level of of an existential crisis in in many ways of how you see yourself how you play or establish an identity in this sort of world where you have no control and although it this doesn't delve into the philosophy so to speak we're, we're very much an active sort of engagement there's that sort of crisis that people have to cope with really well that's that's true but you know that's sort of uh that's where you know, the challenge comes as a writer. You're sort of trying to explore these things. You're trying to kind of work out, you know, how would I handle this situation? What would I do? And, you know, a lot of the time in our daily lives, we do feel powerless. We don't have any options. Um, The decisions are made for us. And just to add another dimension to all that's going on, we have the police force and they're not entirely ethical at times. No, well, that's right. You know, you have good and bad police uh and that is explored here as well and but again you know but what's interesting at one point the police offer Lockie some advice don't go there or they delay him with a breath test yes and you think well actually what a perfect way to stage a a sort of um uh heist um by a fake breath test someone will do this now Um, (laughs) but but they give him a sort of warning and delay him so that he doesn't get to a situation. So everybody's in on the know, except for Lockie. Yeah. <laughs> Who can you trust? That's right. That's right. He is innocent. <laughs> but what is then fascinating about this story, um, I was worried about what we could or couldn't give away, and the nature of the way you've told this story. Because in the opening, we have this um, robbery, armed robbery, a balaclava uh, hooded uh, thief... And Lockie can see the eyes. And I'm thinking, okay, here's the clue that will be part of the puzzle. But it's solved almost immediately. And what you do over the course of the story is almost not give things away, but it's it's not like a detective investigative thing. It's this sort of spiralling continuum that takes place. Yeah. I, well, there's just so many great police procedurals out there. And I, I just don't think that it's something that I could do as well as the great ones that are there. So, you know, my kind of approach is really just, you know, what's the next problem? What's the, you know, and so Lockie just keeps on sort of digging himself into a big hole. So it's, you know, yeah, each of the little puzzles might be solved, but in solving it, it's actually going to cause a bigger problem. And that's just the process that that I use. But it it makes for an interesting read then in terms of when will the escalation actually (laughs) Well, that's right. Where's it going to go? Yeah. And (laughs) and also then, you know, the outcomes are quite fascinating because Lockie has to find this uh, hoard or stash that uh, is what Terry's actually after from a crime that occurred 20 years earlier and all the connections and powers that come into play. It's quite fascinating. The other thing also then is the style. You're like your mother, need to trust me more. Listen to what I tell you. I do know what I'm doing. 
As he said this, he reached for his wallet and pulled out $150. Here, replace what I've eaten, taken, used. Taking the money, I realised Terry looked even more frail and old, a man on the brink of losing whatever power he felt he was clinging to. Like Dutch Monaghan had said, Terry was a man out of time in a world that had changed and left him behind. Or he just had an exciting night. You need a lift? I'm heading back to town. Terry shook his head. The memories and realities of growing old gripped his attention without hope of giving up just yet. Nah, gotta go see a bird about a bath. What does that mean? Bird about a bath? Man about a horse? Same thing. Nah, you made that one up. Why should I make something like that up? I've got people to see. Seems our present from the Monaghans is about to arrive. But if you want to argue about a man's turn of phrase, piss off. (laughs) (laughs) The familiarity with... And and this is what creates the character, that dialogue, that familiarity. How many criminals have you spoken to for this? I've spoken to a few, uh, but not necessarily for the book. Um, Probably the the worst one that I did was... um, Mick Ghetto rang the underbelly office on the first one. I was so sort of shaken. I instead of putting him on hold, I hung up on him. So, <laughs> oh, that's uh, not a very wise <laughs> thing to do. No, that's right. Mick, <laughs> if you're listening, if you're listening, Mick, you know Andy is very apologetic about that one. Yeah, yeah but you know, I've talked to a lot of a lot of crooks for various projects, and um, I've always kind of. You know they're very good at storytellers, oh, yeah. at, at being storytellers, and um, they love a good tale and a yarn, and um, they're all innocent, of course. Uh, so, you know. but the storytelling is often a way of maintaining control of a situation. That is right. Yeah, it's about you know reinventing the narrative yeah. and you know reinventing their own story. So, um, you know, it's it's quite a, an interesting process to view, and, and and when you're kind of researching it. And so, did you have to get into the mindset? of those sorts of characters to write the characters in this book. Well, I think that's that's the the challenge of writing, isn't it? That you you're always trying to get into the the heads of your characters and where they are and coming from a, a television background you you need to know where a character has been before the scene and you need to know where they're going after. And that's kind of the headset and no one thinks of themselves as a bad person. Everybody's the hero of their story. But do the criminals actually know they're a bad person? No. Uh, no. no. They don't justify or re-frame uh, the image in their storytelling and they're doing that because they know they're bad or it's just they don't know? Well, I mean, that's that's really a question for, for, for them. them. But, uh, you know, if, if they're telling you a story, they would have had no choice in the actions and the choices that they've made. They were forced to do that because, you know, the police were giving them trouble. You know, they had no option but to sell it because they needed to pay the rent. This is the narrative that they kind of And it can it justifies. Yeah, it's yeah. justifying their behaviour. And so that's kind of what I'm bringing to, that, to, to my work is that sort of self-justification, the, um, the belief that they, didn't, they couldn't do anything else. Well, and, and in many ways this is the situation Lockie's in. Yes. Everything said, and, and we empathise with Lockie because he's not in control and, and we see that. Or how much control does Lockie actually have? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as the books are progressing, we're kind of realising that Lockie knows a lot more than what he's giving on, letting on. And, you know, he might not be as innocent as he's saying. Well, he makes decisions about what he tells and what he doesn't tell Billy Wong and the Monhans and, and people like that uh, and how much he can devolve about somebody else's involvement in a caper yep. and, and the like just to protect his own interests. Yeah, and also that's about retaining power, isn't it? 
what you reveal, what you sort of share. In a powerless situation. It's the only power you've got in some ways. So we're sort of getting onto this (laughs) philosophy of crime. If any criminals are out there, come to 3CRs, published online. He's just uh, told us that everyone in jail is innocent. I understand that. Yes, some more innocent than others. Um, Well, basically, we're going to have to bring the the interview to a close. We're running rapidly out of time. Is there another uh, Lockie Munro in the offing? Uh, Yeah, I'm working on the third one at the moment. when that sort of emerges, will we... Well, give us a call because we, we need to know more about crime to make ends meet here. But the book is Hiding to Nothing, the author Andy Muir, and it's from Affirm Press. And your book, Ewan, an author? Highway Bodies by Alison Evans from Echo Publishing. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.